welcome to MGU. Jamie and Adam coming at you this episode. Talk about yes, indeed. What's what's what in the world of cinema the past couple of weeks? Orson Welles. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the, the behemoth here at the top. Orson Welles. This is the um, the movie he started shooting in 1970. He shot all the way up to 76 or something. <clears throat> it was mired in all kinds of legal controversy and the political intrigue and all kinds of stuff over the past 40 plus years that uh, prevented it from being completed and released. And finally, Netflix acted as a savior and financed the completion of the film and uh, overcame all of the uh, the hurdles and uh, they released it. And... Um, other Side of the Wind. It's now available on Netflix, as is a companion documentary on uh, the, turmoil, the tumultuous uh, path that this movie's taken. Um, and it's directed by Morgan Neville, who just directed the Mr. Rogers doc. And mm-hmm. so, man, it's a, quite a credentialed uh, documentary, too. And uh, apparently he started on this documentary a, a while ago. Like, it wasn't... It wasn't like a thing that they said, okay, we're going to release this thing. We need a documentary. No, he had been working on this before he ever saw any of it. So let's talk about what we think about both. Mm-hmm. First of all, would you recommend viewing the documentary before or after the actual film? Well, that's the way – that's the approach I took, uh, and and it worked perfectly well for me. I'm not sure that uh, that, that, Which approach? that that would be – uh, do exactly what you just said. I did the documentary before first. Before or after? The, uh, before. <laughs> before. Sorry. Oh, let me clarify. <laughs> I will clarify. No, I saw the documentary first and then saw the feature film. Uh, and I I thought it was fine that way. I thought it enhanced my appreciation of the, the actual film because I, you know, you kind of get a sense of the blood, sweat, and tears that it took to get it finished and all of that. And I don't know, that... It it worked perfectly well for me, but uh, I'm not sure that that would work for everybody. Uh, uh, it's a difference between coming into the movie with context <clears throat> and then receiving the context in retrospect. Like, and mm-hmm. I'd rather I'd rather uh, know the relationships and and how he toyed with the actors in certain ways to get a reaction and. The mm-hmm. living cinema kind of approach that he took before yeah. I see the, the movie because it'll make me appreciate it more as I watch it. The documentary was mightily entertaining. It, it was much better than I think a few years ago. What's that documentarian's name? Kent Jones. Is that his name? No, maybe so. it's a Buzero. Maybe it's a Buzero movie. That magician documentary about Orson Welles. Is that Buzero? Mm, I don't know. It's been a while now, and I I never got around to that one. So, but I, I'm aware of the, the one you're talking about. It's actually available to watch for free on YouTube, and it it's not very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but opposed to that one, this one was very elucidating about Orson Welles, the man and the artist, and uh, and very very entertainingly assembled. Um, it had a lot had a lot of uh, zest to it. Uh, and it didn't shy away from the fact that uh, you know he was a bit of a 
uh, an, an, an asshole, a combative asshole. <laughs> until he until he was called on it, and then he was all chipper chipper again. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was an interesting character portrait as well as a portrait of how he worked during that time. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought so too, and I I found some of the the details that are illuminated there therein quite interesting. The fact that his cinematographer Gary Graver had all these day jobs, you know, to support himself because he was shooting other side of the wind, yeah. but not really getting any income from it and didn't know if he ever would, which as it turned out, I guess he didn't, but he had to live. He had to have shelter over his head and food and had a family to take care of, you know, and so he had to do what he had to do. And he was shooting these adult films and Orson Welles in the movie, they say that he was so eager for, for him to get back to shooting other side of the wind that he would, if he was editing in the middle, if he was um, actually editing one of these adult films, that Orson Welles would get in there and edit these uh, the, these porno films himself yeah. just to help. So there's there's back. some actual there's some actual porn scenes that are edited by Orson Welles out there. Yes, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. I thought so too. I thought so too. Yeah, that was pretty. That was uh, I, I, that kind of blew me away. <laughs> You don't think of the director. And one of the porn films cutting. was called uh, was called Those Magnificent Ambersons. I don't know if you knew that. Or not, but, uh... <laughs> oh anyway. wow! Yeah, yeah you, I, you know, uh, in terms of documentaries, nothing beats um, that that uh, RKO, the the battle over Citizen Kane. Like I, oh, I yeah. think that's the the creme de la creme of uh, almost almost one of the best movie documentaries I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. that was a, an American experience documentary, I think. Sure was. Um, yeah. That one, that one's that one's top notch. This one's not quite as good, but it's 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 very uh, it's very entertaining and breezy and and not nearly as uh, as confusing and um irritating as the film itself. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, and the documentary is called uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that <laughs> that's up there on Netflix. Uh, I will say, for the first like half hour of watching the Orson Welles movie, I felt uh, the real excitement of of just being able to see it. And, and, uh, and, and watching all these people as they're younger and um, you know, I think as much as as much as it is a testament to the ongoing legacy of Orson Welles and filling out a an empty spot in in his resume, I think it does the same for John Huston, who is such a powerful presence as an actor. I mean, it's great that it's great that we have this missing link from him that's finally available yeah. as well in, in that performance. Uh, but the movie is, um, <clears throat> I feel kind of feel like storytelling and technique has outpaced that movie uh, uh, in the 40 years since it was made. Like mm-hmm. maybe if at the time that that came out, it it would be very it would be so different and unique that it would garner. A, a lot of uh, hullabaloo, but I kind of feel like, you know, 
that territory has been covered in the past 40 years. Uh, his, his style of telling that story and the, and the very disjointed cutting. I mean, the disjointed cutting was there in Richard Lester stuff back in the 60s. Mm, that's uh, right. So the actual learn. style... Yeah. yeah. So the actual style of cutting didn't strike me as necessarily... I mean, yeah, it was outside the norm. It's a, it is a movie for cinephiles and not much else. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great assessment. Yeah. It's... It's it's interesting as a as a time capsule, I guess. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when I was watching it. Uh, it's it is fascinating for us who know these people and admire their work, and a lot of them are have been deceased for quite some time, long gone. And you know that's that's all good. And it's and of course we've been salivating for years to see what this film would actually be like if it were ever released so you know yeah we finally get our opportunity but but you know there's a comment in the movie i think somebody says uh, are the reels out of sync and they're talking about the movie that the director character has made and i i kept wondering if the reels were out of sync on the 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 other story that was going on would we really know because <laughs> it's so yeah. disjointed that I don't think we would know if the reels were out of sync. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's interesting like a lot of I think it would have been just a cinephiles movie back in 76 or 85 mm-hmm. when he came close to fighting to get the rights back to it but um, yeah, it's interesting when I think about my criticisms of it if um, if I'm criticizing the way we look at movies now, or I'm criticizing the actual movie, because it, mm-hmm. it's not fair to to say necessarily that movies have caught up over the past forty years, so this one doesn't seem as uh, as impressive, because it's not mm-hmm. the movie's fault. I mean, he directed it no. back in in nineteen seventy six, but yeah. at the same time, even 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 the you know, I'm thinking about the way he he would manipulate real situations, and so it would be part of the fabric of the movie. Like I, I really appreciate the fact that he wanted to make a movie about uh, that uh, was informed by 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 life by accident. Um, yeah. And I think in in much the same way that maybe a movie like Apocalypse Now. Uh, was totally informed by the conditions under which it was shot. Uh, it became the, the movie. The experience of shooting the movie is in that movie. They didn't try to manufacture or separate them. Um, and I think that's what Orson Welles was, in his own way, trying to get to, too, but in a, in a very interpersonal way. So I think that the stuff that works best in the movie is actually <clears throat> the, the scenes between Orson Welles and Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, where you can feel kind of this push and pull of Bogdanovich trying to be helpful to his master and then John Huston slash Orson Welles not quite um, having some kind of jealous animosity towards him Mm -hmm. at the same time and wanting to, you know, flaunt his manliness and his superiority over him, even though they're yeah. colleagues and friends, supposedly. And I think that mirrored the real-life relationship between Bogdanovich and Wells. 
And and that's another reason why it's good to watch the documentary before the movie because it makes those scenes a lot deeper if you understand the context of that relationship mm-hmm. that they had. Uh, as a movie itself, there are a couple of good things in there that I responded to pretty strongly. I, 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 that love scene in the car yes. was pretty yeah. pretty well done uh, in the movie within the movie. Uh, that's – and that's a that was, beautifully edited uh, scene, and and it's uh, and Orson Orson did that himself. I mean that 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 was done because that uh, sequence has been around for a while. That was one mm-hmm. of the sequences that was done by Orson Welles that was completed, and yeah. um, and you know the the sound of the rain and the colors and the the shadows yes. of the dro- of the raindrops and it's a, it's a and you don't. Equate Orson Welles with eroticism, necessarily, but that that scene is a is a real standout. Yeah, and and of course it opens the door to more questions. That had he got, had the financing to do so, would he have attempted more things in that vein? You know, because it seemed like he was going in a different direction when you see that. And I, I don't know. Um, made me think that anyway. It made me wonder. And then uh, you know, I just watched the brisky point a few months ago and mm-hmm. it's, it's a good reference uh when you go into the other side of the wind and it, uh, uh, you know the documentary goes into how he wasn't necessarily enraptured with a lot of those movies that came out of uh antonioni or uh his ilk but he thought to some extent that they were vapid and silly and yeah. so that helps to know because he's obviously modeling the film within a film on Zabriskie Point more than anything else. Yeah, the feel of it the, in the in the desert and you know the you know the, just the whole feel of it. And uh, yeah. you know he thinks it's, he thinks it's ridiculous, but it's beautiful to look at. I mean those, those sequences. I mean especially when you go from what appears to be like maybe sixteen millimeter, uh, which makes up most of the John Huston story. Yeah, uh, and then and then you go to the pristine, obviously thirty-five millimeter uh, film within a film, with uh, you know with massive amounts of nudity and uh, desert landscapes and clear blue skies. It's uh, that footage is beautiful to look at. Yeah, and it goes into widescreen as well. You know, it goes from the one point thirty-three frame to, I guess, like a one point eighty-five to one frame or something around that. It's what it looked like to me anyway. So, and again, yeah. that, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff, and 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 the the fast subliminal cutting, uh, we're seeing it now after we've sat through thirty years of Oliver Stone movies. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a difficult movie to review, as as if you are a nineteen seventy six audience because you're not. Yeah. Yeah, and I do wonder. Would we be talking about this movie had it been completed after all those years ago? Would would this be uh, something that would be in the discussion, or would it have been forgotten and kind of relegated as a minor entry in the career of, or a minor footnote in the career of Orson Welles? I mean, it makes me wonder uh, yeah. if it would have been something, you know, that people still talked about. And would it have represented? Would it have been a comeback? I mean, 
they talk about how he desperately needed a comeback and he really thought that he could, that this movie could do that for him. And I, I don't think so. No. Uh, I don't know that it would have. It, it would have been much of what it is today, which is a curio. Yeah, I think so too. It's just, it's the lack of a clear narrative, I think, would have probably alienated audiences even in that time frame that he was thinking of or trying to get it released. I don't think the mainstream audiences would have warmed up to it because there's just the, the narrative is just not there. It's just not what it's about. And I think that throws a lot of that that that's going to immediately eliminate a lot, a large portion of your mainstream audience. It just it always has. It always will. So yeah. that leaves you with the, like you said, the Sinist crowd and the, the the people who appreciate that sort of thing. And um, I, I'm not sure if what, he, had, he, had, big... he had more in common. He had more in common with the with the French New Wave and the European sensibility than he probably wanted to admit. Uh, I mean, because he he really did he really did want to advance the form. You know, he even said, look, I, 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 he wanted to make an improvisational movie. He, he wanted to make something that feels like it, that it's living. Uh, and I, I appreciate that pursuit. But I think a, lo- a lot of the groundbreaking cinema from, from Europe uh, was, tr- was trying to push the boundaries and redefine what cinema could be in the same way. Yeah. Um, so I, I think he did have a lot in common with them, even if he might have thought, even if he might have thought that they were kind of highfalutin and silly. But I think that part of the thing that annoyed me about Other Side of the Wind was every single scene once again was filled with people that just are making wisecracks, like they can't talk like normal people. Like everything has to be so brilliantly conceived. It has to be so, so rich with some kind of educational value. Uh, you know, it got tiring after a while because it yeah. was the same same rhythm to every single character exchange. But yeah, I mean, I, I I'm glad I saw it. There are some things to yeah. embrace in it, um, and but like I said, o- overall, not 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 a home run for me. I just um, and you know. I, th- I think me being weaned on narrative storytelling all these many decades has pr- probably affected my appreciation of it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so. See, and I, I don't, I don't mind it being different. I think about this a lot because my best friend about he thinks that uh, that story, plot and story are the most important thing, and and I, I don't. I mean, because. Uh, I don't know if I subscribe to anything being the most important in movies, mm-hmm. except for the director to have a vision. So I, I, I'm okay. I'm okay with his style of storytelling in Other Side of the Wind, and I appreciate that it's somewhat different from the norm. It's just, uh, like I said, it, it, it's too late. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's arrived too late. It's a difference between. Um, I don't necessarily – if I'm watching like a David Mamet uh, like House of Games or whatever that that is so intrinsically uh, – uh, then yes, I want it to have a good plot. But you know, I don't go to an art gallery and say, oh, I don't like the plot of that painting. 
So it's not, you know, it, movies yeah. can be so much more. And I think it's a difference between my, my best friend, his favorite filmmakers are Spielberg and then, you know, uh, other people of that ilk. And mm-hmm. mine are Scorsese, Altman, uh, Ashby, those kinds of filmmakers, because for those kinds of filmmakers, the character is plot for the most part. Yeah. Um, And that's the kind of cinema I respond to most. Yeah, I I agree. Those filmmakers too, they found a unique balance. I think of both. That's what I attracts me to them is they, you know, like you said, the character is, is front and center and very important, but they also know that, you know, there needs to be some sort of destination for those characters and they don't forget to, to, to make that, to, to insert that as well. So, you know, and I don't think this movie had any, <laughs> they don't, they didn't have any. Destination yeah. Really. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different mindset uh, yeah. because it's the difference between outlining the movie and saying, this is where we're going. You know, this is the, and it, this is the inciting incident that, ushers in act two and this is mm-hmm. what ushers in act three and this is the there's a difference between doing that and then creating a character knowing a character and filling in the world that he inhabits or he or she inhabits mm-hmm. that means your movie's more about character character yeah. is the plot because you're not building a plot and then plugging in a character to to execute that plot it's the opposite and yeah. that's the filmmaking that I prefer. I don't, but I don't think any of these characters in Other Side of the Wind were really clearly defined. For no, no, me. no. I'm, I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm making a, I'm making a mm. generalization. Yeah, I, I'm not talking about Other Side of the Wind. Right. Just the other, these other films. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that was part of my problem, though. I think with Other Side of the Wind, it's, I should clarify, is that I don't think any of these characters were clearly defined. I really didn't. Um, they were almost caricatures, some of them. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that ha- had they been a little more clearly defined, I may have been for- more forgiving for the film's lack of narrative. But when you don't really have clearly defined characters and you don't have a, a real narrative, it's you know what you're left with is just the novelty of the technical stuff and and spending time with actors that we, a lot of whom are no longer with us and, you know, that sort of thing. He was obsessed with masculinity as what's discussed in the documentary. And uh, there's a lot of wounded bravado in the movie. That's interesting. And it's impossible to watch the movie without in some way, psychoanalyzing Orson Welles. It's one of those kinds of things. There's a lot of great details in that, that documentary too that I took away. You know, the uh the fact that he was deeply hurt by the comments that Peter Bogdanovich and Burt Reynolds made on the Tonight Show where they were kind of making fun of him to a certain degree mm-hmm. after the experience of a Nickelodeon uh well it was Orson and uh Burt Reynolds, that's right. They were making fun of Peter Bogdanovich, that's what it was and and uh right. Bogdanovich was hurt by that and I don't think he quite ever got over it and I was I, I, I didn't realize that, that that had happened I wasn't aware of that and and I liked the part where Sybil Shepherd was talking about when he lived with them in their guest 
mm-hmm. house or whatever, and he he lit up the cigar and <laughs> he he put it put a lit cigar in his uh, the, the the pocket of his robe, <laughs> almost caught himself on fire. <laughs> oh, that was that was interesting stories in there yeah. too. Bogdanovich has always been uh, very beholden to his the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's always uh, he's always been very reverential to the cinematic masters that came before him. And good, yeah. um, good on him. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he was he did that uh, that documentary about John Ford, which is really good uh, that he did not long before Ford's yeah. passing. So that's and they just did one, one on Buster Keaton that, that's yeah. out there now. True. So. And yeah. he befriended all of them. He wrote books of interviews with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's made a concerted effort to, uh, and he tries to impersonate them every single time he opens his mouth. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a good mimic. He really is. And, uh, you know, my our mutual friend Aaron, he, he has no shortage of complaints about the Netflix like movies to hell, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> and yet he managed to see the other side of the wind at a movie theater, and it's well, all because yeah. of Netflix. Yeah, well, they are making some effort. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I, t- I mentioned last show we did that they did a press screening for us for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Although I didn't, I wasn't able to attend it because we they had another screening scheduled the same night, but they did have one in a theater. And yeah. that was a good sign. And well, this wasn't yeah. a screen. This actually opened the other side of the wind in his neighborhood, so he wow. was able to go see it. You know, it opened in like twelve cities, and he and good he's point. pissed off that Netflix will, will uh, not release the theatrical gross when they come out with these movies in the theaters, <laughs> like everybody else. <clears throat> and he compares it to. What did he compare to? I'll, I'll find out what he compared. I don't know. It's a thing that we both like. We go back and forth on. I'm like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous <laughs> that you're making this argument. But hang on, I, we're going to find out. Let me see if I can. Okay. Is it dialing? Hello. Hey. Hey. It's Jamie. <laughs> so, hey, bud. Adam's on the line too. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Hey, guys. What's up? Good. Uh, All right. uh, Tell us what you think of Netflix, because we're talking about Netflix, and I'm talking for you, speaking on your behalf. I just figured (laughs) I'd go right to the horse's mouth. (laughs) Uh, Well, a little complicated, uh, but I'll try to delineate my thoughts. And that, uh, obviously, Netflix is, they've, been a major force in the entertainment industry, but I do believe that their in-game and that their business models is detrimental. Uh, one to to just basic to the theatrical experience, but also I do believe it's also insidiously detrimental to uh, filmmaking in general. So uh, Netflix, they. They will tell you that they are about creative, you know, creative freedom, artistic freedom. They give creative control to the to the creatives who create the shows and create the movies. Um, that is just a carrot on the stick. 
because they really, bottom line, they really don't care about quality. I mean, if they have great shows, that's great, that's a bonus, but they really don't care. They're about quantity. Uh, they want, just, they want, their end game is to one day, that one day be Netflix is your go-to automatic for entertainment. Be it a TV show or a movie or a documentary, you know to go to Netflix. That's what they would love to happen, is that you just go to them at all times. Um, so, there's a push and pull. Some people don't seem to really care about this. Uh, they just kind of accept this change. Uh, the thing, what was interesting that happened last week is that, grudgingly, I believe, they agreed to a three-week exclusivity for theatrical run for Roma before it went on their platform because Alfonso Cuaron is a world-class Oscar-winning filmmaker, and he does believe in a theatrical experience. And the thing is, day and they believe Netflix will tell you that they believe in day and date with theatrical and going on their service because they believe their customers should have the ability to see said film, said whatever, in any format they see fit. And that's a that's a good line to have. But the fact is, day and date for theatrical uh, eats at profitability and the theatrical experience. It just does. That's just a fact. And so they prefer that. And so that's why there's this 90-day window that, that theater owners have agreed on. You know, have to be in theaters for 90 days before it can go on digital and other formats. So the fact that they've even done this three week that is just grudgingly uh, the minimum amount of work that they want to do to appease Alfonso Cuaron and also to meet the qualifications for their Oscar win. They want they want to say they don't really care about awards. Awards really don't mean anything to Netflix. They just like the prestige. I compare it to Trump in a weird way. Trump didn't really Trump didn't want to be president. He just wanted to say he was elected president. It's about the branding. And so Netflix just wants to say that they have a best picture winner as part of their library of films. So that's what that's why they're grudgingly doing all the the minimum amount of work to qualify for uh, the Oscars this year with Roma. They did it last year with Mudbound, and they're doing it this year with Roma. So, so yeah, so that's how I view Netflix. Where did you see Other Side of the Wind? I went I went to the theater. Um, it was playing because uh. National chains don't play, do not want to help out Netflix. So more independent chains are the ones who are doing the Netflix thing. So as you know, Landmark is getting Roma, two theaters, one in New York, one in L.A. Uh, Alamo Drafthouse is an independent chain, so they do the Netflix movies day and date. So the weekend it dropped on Netflix, it was playing at my local Alamo Drafthouse. Granted, one showing a day, but I made it a choice to go see in the theater. Uh, I looked at my draft house. We did not get Buster Shrugs this week, the Coen Brothers, so I assume we might get it next weekend when it drops on Netflix. So maybe I'll go see it in at the Alamo Draft House next week. So, uh, 
and Adam, jump in whenever you want. Cause so, but Adam, <laughs> uh, Aaron and I talk talk about this all the time. I don't. Uh, <laughs> without Netflix, you we wouldn't have we wouldn't have seen Other Side of the Wind in any capacity, yes. right? That, that is true. I and I truly and I acknowledge I and see, that's the insidious. Uh, part of Netflix. That's the carrot on the stick. And that, yes, we would not have seen Orson Welles's we would not have seen Orson Welles's final film completed without Netflix. So that is something they need to be commended upon. But, um, you know, the trade-off in that is like the final film from the innovator of modern film language, uh, you got to see it on your mobile. You can see it on your mobile devices. You can, uh, but look, yeah. uh, even even if <clears throat> even if Orson Welles made the biggest movie of all time, it would only play, like I was just saying that it would only play point one percent of its lifespan in a movie theater. The rest of the time, people have access to watch it on their mobile phones. Right. So, it, it's you know the the theatrical experience. It's but good, see, okay, but, but see, I, the I don't think Wells, it's detrimental to a film because ninety-nine percent of a movie's lifespan is spent outside of the movie theater. Okay, that's true. Okay, but see, and the Orson Welles example is kind of the the rare, you know, kind of the, the kind of exception to the rule, and that it's a rare thing. But you know, something like The Irishman, the Scorsese film. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that is a mainstream Scorsese film with stars. And the whole, right. I mean, we do not know the theatrical pattern that they're going to do with that. But let's just assume they do the Roma thing. And so the fact that a Martin Scorsese film, epic, with De Niro, Pacino, Keitel, um, is only going to get a three-week exclusive theatrical run. I mean, and yes, the majority of its life will be on TV, on Blu-ray, whatever. You know, however, that's for every film. So... But the fact is, the Scorsese film is, you know, only going to get a, possibly a three-week theatrical run. I mean, that's that's just not. Uh, if if you care about the theatrical experience, that's just not appropriate. See, and the thing, like, and I I I I, I, care, I compare this to Trump in a lot of ways, just so people can kind of understand what where I get my point on this is that. None of this is in law. None of this is by regulations. This is just the norms by which people respected. On, okay, we're gonna we agree on these rules, and this is how we're gonna do things. And Netflix is coming and basically said, well, we're not bound by those rules, so we're not gonna do that, and we're just gonna ruin things, and we're just gonna do it our way, and it's our way or the highway. And that. You know, and they have every right to do that, and they are doing that, and people seem to be complying and not questioning it. But in the end, you have to want, you have to question: Is that, in the long term, is that good for theatrical film? Is that good for movies? Is that good for, is that good for the industry? And at this point, I say, it's not. Yes, we got Orson Welles' final film, uh, but that's the bright shiny object, I think. No one else. No one else would, would finance Scorsese's movie, so I think it's more important to to actual have actually no, well, have it made. That that have movie was going back. That movie. Well, the thing no, that movie was going around and around with different 
produce it. It was the budget that was getting out of control. And so it was just being sold. But nobody would finance it. Yeah. So it was, but eventually it was going to get made. It's just the person, uh, I forget the guy's name, who had the right, he got anxious. (laughs) But he got anxious. You're talking. You're talking about a 75 year old director and a, and a and a actor who's the same. Age. All the actors are up there too. Okay. Like event, they don't have eventually. Okay. What well, the thing is, I mean, okay. So you got to ask yourself: is 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 getting that film made right now? You know, you know, was getting that film made worth uh, putting that feather in Netflix's cap and putting and chipping away once again? At the at the theatrical experience and at the industry, if is it worth is that is that the trade off worth taking? I mean, it's just a movie. Yes, it's a movie. I am dying to see. Yes, because because the movie the movie will live forever, or live however long movies live, and and the place where they live is not in the theater. Movies don't live forever in the theater. But the theatrical experience is something that will is something. Theatrical experience is like it's kind of like uh, uh, Broadway, you know, stage theatrical. Right. I mean, okay, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be there, and people are but always. No, it's not. <laughs> There's all, because I mean, because you know the only way what? that the, the the Broadway experience lasts is if somebody films it, and then they show it to people at home. No, but I'm talking about the actual Broadway experience. It's always there. It's been there. It's survived. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So it's always there. And theatrical is always going to be there. Um, it's just a matter of so people always want to see movies in theaters. There always there's always going to be a need to see something in a theater. And so, but Netflix is trying is chipping away at that in an unhealthy way. I I guess and so I guess I. I still judge these movies on their own. You got you, you can't hold it against these movies. They're getting made, but you, they're, they're not getting made in a vacuum. And the irony of all of this, this rule breaking or this running the table, this Trumpian approach, was not started by Netflix. Um, it actually started two years ago with ESPN, when they did the OJ Only in America, two theaters for a week, to qualify right. for the Oscar. Um, I mean, that well, was, HBO would do the same thing. Hmm? HBO did the same thing with the uh, the the the, um, the Julian Assange thing. Um, all that, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, but see, the, the 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 Julian, but it actually did get a theatrical. It got a a real theatrical, limited art house run, and the Citizen Four film is. Let's be honest, it's a real film. It's a two-hour narrative documentary. Uh, the the OJ Only in America thing is this eight hour eight and a half hour mammoth multi part mini series, and it's a remarkable achievement, but it has no business being in a theater. It had no it, it was not a, it had no business being in a theater. It was only booked in a theater because ESPN wanted to have an Oscar, um, and that is you know and like I said there are no rules bounding them that you know linked them and they could do it and they did it and and they got the Oscar. But that is unfair to the, all the other documentaries that, you know, claw and fight their way to get minimal, you know, to get the, the, the minimum amount of theatrical screens and distribution just so they can get on an even playing field. And here comes ESPN 
who have money to burn, and they're like, you know what, we can book our eight-part, eight-hour epic in two screens just to get minimum for the week qualification, and we can get the Oscar. And that's just, um, you know, that's kind of the. It's like, but that's like saying, you know, the fact that Disney finances a uh, hundred movies a year is not fair to the the other people that can't get financing. I mean, it's. No, they no, finance. Uh, but it. yeah, but no, but it's it's the more of the the Walmart coming into the small town and killing off all the other local vendors. Is that's what ESPN was, and that's what Netflix is, uh, and that's the thing. Netflix is, I think, they're doing eighty movies a year, and that's the thing. Studios, uh, regular studios, don't do eighty movies a year. I mean, they might do yeah. twenty at that. And so, once again, Netflix is all about quantity, not quality. And let's be fair. Let, and let's be honest. I mean, I don't watch, I don't look at everything that comes on Netflix because they drop like fucking half a dozen, a dozen things a week. And but the stuff I have seen, it I mean the quality is wildly uneven. I mean there are some shows that are really good. There are some shows that I mean they wouldn't make it on a regular network. There are some movies on Netflix that are really good, and then there are other movies that are just eyesores and you can barely get through them. I mean they. They have no quality. Yeah, you control. got you. They it's it's like anything else. When you pay for a movie, you got to be a discerning viewer. Mm-hmm. But but but, they, but they're hedge, but they're hedging their bets by hiring the, the best yeah. artists they can for the bigger projects. Yeah, but well, they, I, I mean, I, they don't know scripts. I mean, I mean, if anyone saw Bright, you know, the Will Smith David Ayer thing, any other studio would not have greenlit that film because. That script is unfilmable. I mean, that script is awful. I mean, a script, uh, uh, any studio is like, look, got an idea here, uh, but you need to fix this, you need to do this. They, 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 the fact that Netflix doesn't give notes uh, on their projects shows. I mean, studios are not. So you're complaining about studio bigwigs not give not giving notes to filmmakers. I mean, have haven't we been? Haven't we rolled throughout history, rolled our eyes at studio executives and their opinions on what Look, a movie should be? There, because yes, there are always there. There are always going to be stories of studio interference, where like you know what the studios kind of they 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 stuck their hand in this one too much, and you can tell. But for every story of you know hell on a set of the studio interference, there are a dozen movies. Where the studio's notes or the studio's you know suggestions are solid ones, and we don't hear you know they don't write about you know they don't write about you know no one's gonna write the no one's gonna write the story or the the you know the tell all about well actually the studio was very cooperative and we really went back and forth and they had some good ideas and we had some ideas and you know it really worked out and it was a cre- great creative uh, experience. That's not an interesting story, but for every notorious bad film that gets noted to death, there are a dozen movies that also get notes from producers and they're they're, you know you know, they're they're some of our favorite films. So, you know, it it's kind of this myth or this mythology that's built up on studios are evil or, you know, the numbers are evil. You know, this this thing about, you know, in the eighties, you know, everyone started to care about box office numbers 
and it became a sweepstakes, and that's why we got bad movies. That's a good narrative, but that's not true. Uh, it's just that what was just relegated, what was once just relegated to the traits and variety in Hollywood Reporter, it jumped onto the arts page and became part of our movie's narrative. But studios yes. always followed the box office. <clears throat> Uh, well, that's always... well, Why does it have to be audiences following it too? I mean, that's where it went wrong. That—that's when movies well, became a, I mean, but like audience, a spectator I mean, sport instead but, of instead of viewed as they should be. What do you What do you call the bestseller list of the New York Times or the Billboard Hot 100? People who love music they follow those lists. People who love books follow the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, it just tells you what people are liking. I mean. Yes, there are people who probably, the you know, people read too much into it at times, but those lists are there, are, are purposeful. I mean, they serve a purpose. I mean, so, I mean, the Hot 100 list tells you what people are listening and tells you what the trends are in music and what's selling. And that tells me what to avoid listening to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, How to recognize a single damn song out of anymore. Adam, say, say something. You were trying to butt in. Earlier. No, I was just going to say, I think, for me, a thing that worries me about Netflix, um, not that I'm totally bashing it, but I, I do see them, the, the, I, if they're doing this, I'm not aware of it, um, putting these movies out on in physical form. I don't see any hard disks or any of that. And, you know, we've seen this with Filmstruck. You know, they can just decide to stop streaming something and it's gone forever if you don't have a hard copy. And Well, the thing is, Netflix, I mean, unfortunately, Filmstruck, the problem with Filmstruck, which film buffs love, yes. uh, but Filmstruck, um, you know, the, 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 the name of the game is branding, and Filmstruck mm -hmm. was not very good at branding outside of, you know, film Twitter circles. And so no one really knows. It, Filmstruck wasn't ubiquitous with anything unless you were a film film person unlike netflix netflix is like xerox or kleenex it's the catch-all for online streaming so netflix isn't going away like that it's the same thing with criteria you know criterion's been around for 30 plus years and it's finally at a point while it's still a niche uh uh boutique label but there are people you know average there are still there are average citizens now who know what Criterion is? They may not. They obviously they don't buy the all the Criterions. They don't. But they know. Oh, it's a They know what they know what Criterion now means. They know what they when they get when they pick up a Criterion. They know what that stands for. Um, so it's all about branding. And so Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu. These are the kind of the big three. It's like you know the automotive industry. These are the big three: Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu. And all these others are having to carve out their own identity, which is why Disney has felt compelled felt compelled to buy Fox so they can have enough content for their own streaming service to complete, compete with Netflix. Because, I mean, I do not – I mean, the Disney buying Fox is very is, – is a very stark development, but it is one that was necessary if Disney wanted to survive and be independent – from Netflix, so I mean, it's just that's just the way it is. And so well, Warner Brothers will probably start their own streaming service; they can afford it. And 
That's just, I mean, it's just a matter of survival now. Netflix yeah. has created this. Well, yeah, that's true. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at, though, is that there's, I don't think it's physically possible if they're putting out 80 movies a year to completely have everything up on their site at all times. They're, they're going to have to get rid of some and make way for others, and if there are no hard physical copies of them, some of that stuff's just going to disappear, which, like you said, some of it probably should disappear. But, but you know, there's probably some worthy titles that are just going to go away, and we can't, you know, we have no access to them. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Well, they will, they will lose less, and, they will be getting less and less licensing deals. Um, I think the BBC they still have, so I guess that'll be one thing they'll still keep. Uh, see how long that lasts, and um. And then you know, very and even at this moment, it's very selective in what catalog uh, titles they get from libraries. But that's not the where that used to be their bread and butter. Um, it's not anymore. They want eventually. They want you to just go to Netflix for whatever they have. You want to see a movie. You want to see a documentary. You want to see a, a TV show. Your they want your impulse to be. Well, I'll see what's on Netflix. They just that's what they want. Yeah, I mean who who doesn't if, who doesn't want that? Um, <laughs> but that that does not that you know, the thing is there's always the thing is, you know, with studios there is always a variety. There is a Warner Brothers film, there's a Fox film, there's an MGM film, there's a Universal, there's a Paramount. So you get different studios making different types of movies. Netflix just making Netflix movies. Um that's not good. Yeah, and I mean, say, for instance, if I wanted to go back and watch the Pee Wee Herman movie they put on there three years ago, and it's not there, and there's no physical copy of it, well, you know, I'm just out of luck, you know, and they can do that. They have the control to do that. Uh, Amazon is interesting. Uh, I mean, Amazon, I, you know, they have their own problems I have. I mean, like Netflix, they don't show their numbers, which I think is detrimental. But at least Amazon, because they know it will whatever they make will eventually wind up on their service, Amazon uh, doesn't fear the theatrical window. Uh, so they will adhere to the 90-day you know, window. And it worked out for them. I mean, Manchester by the Sea got them some Oscars. And The Big Sick was a big summer hit last year. Um, right now they have, uh, I think, Beautiful Boy is slowly expanding. And that's a, that's an Amazon and Suspiria, you know. So they got you know they have those two things. So they 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 don't mind playing the theatrical game. Yeah. And it's fun. And the thing is, theatrical does build. You know, yes, theatrical the theatrical run of a movie is probably the shortest part of a movie's lifespan, but that theatrical run does a lot to build up a movie's uh, market value. And interest and uh, just just uh, brand recognition. I mean, a movie like First Reformed, uh, I think, is a classic example. That could easily have been, you know, a VOD movie in another at a different time, or, or a Netflix movie, or or an Amazon movie. But the fact is, it had a substantial art house run for about two three months, and articles were written about it in multiple publications and in blogs, and it stayed in the conversation long enough that when it finally went to its VOD or its streaming service, 
it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I heard about this movie. I know this movie. Uh, I should check this out. I read about it. I saw, didn't see it in theaters, but it has a brand recognition. Uh, and that's what the theatrical experience can do. Yep. That's that's a good point. And same thing with these docs. I mean, I thought the bet to me the 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 underreported story this summer of this year is the breakout of documentaries making br- routinely cracking the uh, 10 million dollar mark in theatrical. Uh, I mean, RBG, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Three Identical Strangers, uh, Free Solo is about to crack the $10 million mark. And mm-hmm. there's, it is about, you know, two years ago, or a year ago even, it is very conceivable that all of those docs would have, like, been gobbled up by Netflix. And they just would have, they would have been dropped on a Friday, you would have gotten a few stories, a few... Twitter things over the weekend, and then they would have just been lost in the shuffle of, you know, 20 other Netflix titles. Because of those theatrical runs of RBG, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Threading of Strangers, and Free Solo, going on for months and months all summer, I mean, they have uh, they have brand recognition, name recognition, that when they finally do go on VOD or Amazon, Netflix, wherever they are, people are like, oh, I heard about that doc. I didn't get to see it in theaters. But I got to check that doc out. Everyone was going to see that doc. Wouldn't mm-hmm. happen if it had just gone straight to Netflix. Yeah, that is true. That is mm-hmm. true. And hopefully, it will encourage more of those type of films to be made and released <coughs> in theaters because I mm-hmm. think that's a good thing. So, but yeah. Um, so, I, I'm right, so not a, tell I'm, tell tell me once again why it's detrimental that we don't know what a movie grosses. <laughs> Uh, well, if I'm a creative, you know, if I'm a filmmaker, I mean, knowing the grosses, I mean, I know what I'm worth. I know when I go into the next project, hey, my last film made X, so I should get this budget and I should be paid this much. Um, but if Netflix is like, uh, yeah, it did real well. Oh, how well is it? Uh, well, we're not going to tell you. So this, but we're going to give you this much. I mean, how? I mean, am I going to just? Do you just take your boss's word of what? You know what? We're going to give you a raise because you're doing this much better, but we're not going to tell you how much. I mean, it's it it it's it's detriment. I mean, that's just that. I mean, that's not the way I'd want to operate if I want to know what I'm worth in the market in the marketplace. It'd be like having running an election. Of any kind. I'm not talking political. I mean, it could be political. It could be just student council, anything. And you got the incumbent and the and the challenger. And the incumbent basically says, oh, well, I got the most vote. I got the popular votes. I got the most votes. And you're like, well, what would the vote tell it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. But take my word for it. I got the most votes. <laughs> um, so, so in other words, I, want, with, I was going to say, I with grosses, we, we know why free solo is a hit and solo is not. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and the thing, I mean, we know why Solo underperformed. I mean, we know, and the thing is, I mean, and Solo, I mean, it didn't perform like other Star Wars movies, but it still managed to get to 200 million. So it also tells us that the stories of, the stories that had headlines of Solo bombs were also an exaggeration because we can look at the numbers and say, well, it didn't actually bomb. Uh, it just underperformed like these other ones. 
Um, so wasn't out yeah. out disaster. Yeah, uh, and and I, and I and I don't know of a single director that doesn't that uh, that wants their worth to be uh, uh, calculated by how much money their last movie grossed. Uh, so I, I think that's artist to the artist's detriment, actually. And Netflix doesn't have the same economic no, uh, model as a. Are you telling? So are you saying? Are you saying? You know, let's just here's here's a weird hypothetical. Here's here's a just uh, a major hypothetical, an extreme hypothetical. But let's just say Netflix put out Black Panther. Okay. And that was a Black Pan. That, that was a Netflix movie. Black Panther was a Netflix movie. You saying Ryan Coogler wouldn't care what it made and know what he's worth? Just if they, but they just told, oh, it's a real, it's a big hit. Well, what are it making? Well, we we're not going to tell you that, but it's a big hit. So just take a look for it. You're going to get a nice bump on the budget and a nice raise on your next film. Okay. Well, well, how much? Well, no, we can't tell you. I mean, I mean. The fact that Black Panther makes seven hundred million domestic, Ryan Coogler goes into the next his next negotiation like, look, uh, don't lowball me on my budget on my next film, and don't lowball don't don't say, well, we can't pay your salary. I mean, no directors want to know that they they do they want to know. <laughs> that, well, first of all, I, 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 do, are we sure that they don't know? Are we sure that Netflix doesn't tell the actual people? Yes, they, that is a rule. They do not give out numbers, and and creatives have said. I mean, I, I this was an article I like, I think two years ago, uh, talking to Tina Fey because she's behind Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and she says they they keep the numbers. They say we're one of the highest rated shows on there, but you know, don't know the numbers, but that's what they tell us. Uh, I saw one of the actors. I mean, of all. I mean, of all things, one of the actors from Full House, Fuller House, says, "Yeah, we're the highest-rated uh, show on uh, on Netflix. We don't know; the, they don't tell us the numbers, but they tell us we're the most popular show." I mean, so yeah, I mean, creatives and artists, you know, talent has said, "Yeah, they they say we're a popular show, but they won't tell us the numbers." I mean, that is why they I don't, went I don't, to I don't, I don't know who Ryan. I don't, I don't know Ryan Coogler, so I don't know his personality. But I would guarantee you, if you under your premise, if he's given a raise, an opportunity to make his next film, he wouldn't give a shit. And I think a lot of filmmakers uh, feel like the value of their movies are being equated with how much did it make. Like that's the only question people have about a movie. Like how much did it make, and that'll determine what the value of that movie is. And I think that's a thorn in a lot of their sides that they would rather not deal with. And if you uh, and if you aren't happy with the Netflix economic model, then don't sign the damn contract. Uh, I mean, that's I mean, yes, that is a thing. But I mean, uh, like I said, the creative control, creative freedom. I mean, a lot of that is the carrot on the stick. That is the Faustian bargain that they make. And I think that's you get why to make I, your movie. There's. <laughs> I mean, well, you, if you, you notice, not make they're not getting. Make it. You notice they're not getting a lot of re- repeat business from filmmakers. Um, you're getting a lot of one-off. Well, one-offs. they just started. They just started yeah. producing original content a couple of years ago, and then and and well, earnest in the past year or so, they amped it up. Well, I'd be shocked. I mean, well, okay, so we we will see how much of directors are going to come out and say, "Oh, I love working for Netflix." We're going to see how much, just as much as, you know, uh, directors have, you know, 
kind of now soured on doing a Star Wars movie because of the way Kathy Kennedy runs Lucasfilm. Um, yeah. You know, when when Lucasfilm started with the whole you know rebooting Star Wars, directors were chomping at the bit to have meetings with Kathy Kennedy and like, oh, I'd like to do a Star Wars movie. But with two, you know, two of the four. And films, why don't they? Why don't they want to work for Kathleen Kennedy? Why wouldn't they return to her? Because she's too invasive. Because she takes it away from them. Okay, which is a problem you don't have in Netflix. <laughs> uh, well, no, well, so yeah, think. Kathy Kennedy interferes too much. I mean, she's a. Are we going to take the whole hour and a half to... show to talk about this? This but, would be great. But <laughs> thing is, I mean, there there has to be a balance between notes and not notes, and uh, it can't just be one extreme or the other. And yes, I think Kathy Mark Kennedy, Twain first said that. You know, and <clears throat> yes, Kathy Kennedy interferes too much, and Netflix doesn't interfere at all, and we can see the results. On what happened most now. To be fair, uh, Rogue One, the one, the first one that they took away and had Tony Gilroy finish, uh, actually worked out and turned out to be a terrific movie. So there you go. But on Solo, just didn't work out. And the thing about Solo, I mean, no matter who directed it, I mean, Solo was just going to be bad. It was a bad script. So you could have brought in, you know. You could have resurrected Stanley Kubrick, and Solo was going to be a bad movie. It's just if you don't have the if you don't have a good if you don't have a good script, it's just it you're you're starting at a negative you're starting at a a, a place of negative zero already. So you know, so that's just that's just that. Um, but what no, entertaining any director and and to just I I will push back on one thing. Any director goes in to negotiate the next film. And it's like I don't care, you know. I don't want my movies to be judged on my last. I don't want to be judged on my last film and what they're worth. Uh, that 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 director is is not gonna have a long career because they're operating in a vacuum. Because you you need you have to you know yes you want artistic freedom and you want to be able to make the movie the way you want it, but you are playing with other people's money. So you have to be fiscally responsible, and so you need your movie to make money, and you're gonna be judged on that. So you need to be able to do. You know, you need to be able to do both, juggle both. So, yes, directors do care about what a movie makes. They they just do. That's just that's that's just a fact. Now, they don't like it when that's all people talk about, and when one of their movies, you know, underperforms. They're like, oh, and they equate underperforming with not being a good movie. Yes, directors don't like that, but they do care about what it does. That's I mean, they have to if they want to survive. But Shawshank Redemption was a good example of one that underperformed, but now is considered to be one of the great movies of the '90s by most people, anyway. And, and where and, where has Shawshank Redemption made most of its money, Adam? On TNT, uh, definitely on home video and uh, through uh, well, cable exhibition is where most people saw it. I think, and then uh, definitely on home video. I, I, I think filmmakers. I think filmmakers. A lot of filmmakers, including most of the great ones that we love, would be relieved that they don't have to play the opening weekend game. Yeah, that does take some of the pressure off. I would say. I mean. Um... I'm sure they'd like to, but 
I mean, they still play it. I mean, I mean, if we go by that logic, then like, okay, then don't make movies. If you don't want to play the opening weekend game, then don't make movies. But that's just that's that's just the nature of the business. You're gonna to have to play the opening weekend game. And the thing about you know using Shawshank Redemption. Um, and yet it's not with Netflix. It's a it's a different game. Yeah, and but there's opening. Think it's detrimental. There's opening. And I'm saying it's not detrimental because I think it would be a great relief to filmmakers that to to not have to. So if I if I debut a show on NBC, I mean, should I not care what the overnight ratings are? Yes, you are because that economic model determines that so many viewers sell ads. That's not what Netflix is about. You're you're you're, you're free of that trap. But there's quality shows that don't do well. I mean, so I mean, you know, and they do what? cancel them. They don't renew. If- I think on right. Netflix if they don't perform. So I guess they know. <laughs> or they make But what's their decisions. metric? I mean I mean, shouldn't I have the opportunity to fix the show for next season? I don't know. That's their business. <laughs> That's not my business. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I need to know what people are watching. If are they making something that I want to watch? Well are yeah, I mean, the are they making something? I mean, that's the thing. Most of this, I mean, are they making anything you want to watch? Well, the Irishman is oh, definitely yeah. something I want to watch. I want to watch Other Side of the Wind. I wouldn't mind seeing Roma. I definitely want to see The Irishman. Yeah, for okay, sure. So that's, that's three titles out of 80. Uh, well, I was glad to see the Pee Wee Herman movie a couple of years ago. It was nice to see a new one. And, and the new... Um, Christopher Guest movie that they put out there because nobody was lining up to finance a Chris Guest movie, but of course it was buried. Nobody even knows there's a another one out there. But you know, I was glad for me personally. Okay, it was a I good mean, discussion. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll I mean, good. we'll see how this 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 uh, turns out. I mean, I predict. Um, what do I predict? Um, see, I'm, I'm actually I'm actually predicting that I don't think Roma is going to do, and this is, has nothing to do with the quality of the film. I mean, the film could be a, a masterpiece for all I know. I have not seen it, so I do not know. But I don't think that it's going to do what everyone is prognosticating it'll do come Oscar season. I mean, bottom line, we're still talking about a two-and-a-half-hour, black-and-white, Spanish-language, 70-millimeter tone poem. Um, This is not the kind of thing that just screams, like, multiple Oscar nominations. Like, you know, let's give it ten nominations. So, I mean, I could be wrong. This could be the film that changes all that. And this two-and-a-half-hour, black-and-white, Spanish-language, 70-millimeter tone poem could wind up being the Oscar frontrunner for the everyone seems to be predicting. I just, I, that would be the first. See, but your, your point is that Netflix doesn't necessarily care about Oscars beyond just the, the, the prestige, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean much to them beyond that. I don't know if it would help their, if it helps their bottom line or not, if they, if they win an Oscar, but um, I can say that, you know, we like the Oscars because they're tradition but uh, mm-hmm. we'd be foolish if we thought they were they had any kind of uh 
relevance, much relevance. I mean, it's a it's a pageant. Uh, well, I mean, Oscars do help. Uh, I mean, it used to be the Oscars, you know, Oscar nominations came out, and then your movie got a boost in theatrical. Um, and that's how now Oscars come out, and what it does, it, it gives your movie a boost when it goes to home entertainment um, most of the time. I mean, depending on the couple of Oscar stragglers that are still playing when the Oscars are in theaters, but it helps the home entertainment line. The thing with, uh, so I don't know what the Oscars would do for a Netflix movie other than, I mean, I I, I seriously doubt people are going to watch the Oscars Sunday night and then they're going to be like, and Roma wins. I'm gonna be like, well, I guess I got to subscribe to Netflix. I got to see this movie. I, I, I don't see that phenomenon happening, but it does give Netflix the ability to walk into a room and say, we have the best picture winner of 2019. That's our movie. Mm-hmm. That, that's what they get out of it. That's, that's what they want, and that's what they get. So, yeah, and I think, the, I think the Oscars has to change. I think we're looking at a cha- changing of the Oscars pretty soon, because if they want to stay on national television, then they can't well, be the I think, I mean, for, for if ABC, or If movies. ABC keeps chipping away at uh, at the Academy's traditions and keep wanting to turn it into basically, you know, the second a second run of the Emmy telecast. Um, um, my my solution is um, they should go to a, a premium cable channel. They should go to HBO. Oscars should be on HBO. If I was in charge of the Academy, I'd be like, you know what? We're gonna after this contract's up, we're gonna go to the we're gonna go to HBO. We're gonna have to deal with commercials, and HBO gets to broadcast the Oscars. We will get a set audience, and everyone will know. And it's they don't we don't have to worry about chasing the ratings because y'all are in love with the Titanic numbers from 21 years ago. That's all mm-hmm. this all this they they just want they want the Titanic Oscar Oscar telecast numbers, and that's never gonna happen. Um, even with a movie like so, Star they were so, so so since since they're working with the economic model that they have, where they have to sell commercials and keep their ratings up, you would recommend mm-hmm. they go to a subscription service where they can actually remain true to what the Oscar should be. But you're arguing that artists should not go to a subscription service and Netflix if they want to remain true to what they are. <laughs> no, I mean, because well, HBO cares about quality. HBO is not producing <laughs> HBO is not producing 80 shows and 80 movies a year just so they can get people to come on to HBO. People go to HBO and they know what they get. They so don't have the they, money. They have the quality. They don't yeah. have the, the, and, the Netflix and, has the money. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and gonna, the, but it, it, the money doesn't equate quality. I mean, so HBO, you know what you get. You know when you get an HBO movie or an HBO show, that the vast majority that it'll be, of it, that it'll be a biography of someone. Well, that's what you know. Well, well, that's or, well, to are there many series? I mean, it's not just biographies, but are there many series like Big Little Lies or Sharp Objects or, like I said, TV shows like Succession or, or Game of Thrones or Westworld? You are, you know, you are going to get a certain bottom line quality, high quality level. Right. And some of these shows might be good. Some of these shows might, you know, some shows might not. 
be so good, and they only last two seasons. But you're going to get a bottom line on the And then Netflix is not there. No. Uh, And they're not going to get there if they keep keep producing in bulk. Well, HBO is going to change tremendously. My prediction is now that they're owned by AT&T. Uh, you're not going. What we've seen in the past from HBO is is going to be a thing of the past, I predict, and not. It's not going to be long coming. That's what I think, but that's just my opinion. Maybe. I mean, we don't know. I mean, that is a possibility. We'll see. AT and T gave their word that they would not interfere with HBO, so we'll see if, how long they they stay to that. But as long as Netflix deals in bulk and does eighty, you know, eighty pro, eighty movies a year and. I don't know how many and and and, and what and what's your situation with Dish Network and HBO? Talking about the uh, lack of interference. Well, that's a that's an AT and T thing. Uh, yeah, and AT and T said they weren't going to interfere with HBO. Well, it's right? not about HBO. I mean, AT and T doesn't want to deal with Dish because AT and T is their own, uh, you know, their own distribution. So, I mean, that'll eventually get settled because I mean. They're both going to come to the realization that people are cutting the cord, and they don't have, they do not have a lot of luxury to be like messing with people's, you know, cable bills because people are people are now just cutting the cords and like, you know what? I can give me an Amazon subscription, I can give me a Netflix subscription, an HBO Go subscription, and I don't have to deal with all this, you know, all this uh, interference. So I mean, it'll get resolved. I mean, I expect it to re- get resolved. Of uh, another, I say another week. All right, Adam, you have anything to add? <laughs> well, I was just going to tell talk about widows right quick before we wrapped up because <laughs> I did see it. <laughs> uh, Aaron, you I saw, saw widows too. So, so uh, Adam, tell tell us what you thought of that, and then Adam, and then Aaron can chime in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I I generally enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's Steve McQueen's first movie, obviously, since his win with 12 Years a Slave, and so everybody was clamoring for it. Um, I thought that, you know, the plot basically is that several widows of some people who were involved in criminal activity, shall we say, are, are attempting to recoup the money that they had stolen so that uh, because they have no source of income with their husbands being dead and so that's one plot, and then there's a lot of other plots too, as well. Some of some of which are not as strong as others. Uh, I think when it gets to the part about their their actual plot to get the money back, some of those details are a little murky. I think when you think about it, they don't. Mm, there's some questions I have with some of that, but overall, it's really it's really good though. It's technically well done. Uh, the cast is gargantuan, of course, and uh, it was nice to see Robert Duvall do some some good stuff there. Uh, he gets a few showy scenes doing what he what we love him for. And yeah, overall, Robert Duvall good. basically plays Robert Duvall in this movie. Yes, kind of. He does. He does. But I I liked it. I did. I have to say I I do like it. I think some people may be going a little bit overboard with their praise, maybe just a little bit. But but it it is quite uh, quite enjoyable, and uh, I, I did I did like it. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I was not a fan of Stephen Queen's first two movies, Shame, uh, and I, I forget the other, the first one, the prison film. I forget what it's called. Um, they're pretty unbearable to watch. <laughs> um, 
But 12 Years a Slave was a, a remarkable breakthrough. It's an amazing film. Yes, it was. And it showed that he had a real... It showed that he was no longer afraid to uh, work with a conventional narrative uh, and that he's very good with narrative. And here's mm-hmm. the same thing. It still has some Steve McQueen flourishes, but they yeah. work better here than in, I said, Shame or his other... I forget the name of the other movie. Um, uh, if, if there's a... If there's a flaw in the film, and and flaw is too strong a word, but the film's uh, originality and its strength also is what makes it a little limiting in its entertainment quotient. And that the 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 upshot of the film is that it's a heist movie, but set in a with real world in a real in a real real world setting dealing with uh, up-to-the-minute characters who are dealing with desperation. So it has an immediacy that most heist, heist films don't have. Most heist films are kind of, by their very nature, contraptions and kind of have a movie world reality to them. And they follow these beats, these tropes that we want in every heist film. They, the forming of the team, the training, the obstacle within the training, and then the pulling off of the heist, and then the aftermath. And they all have, it's all done in clockwork fashion. And so you go through all the heist films throughout the history of cinema, they follow this formula, be it Asphalt Jungle, The Killing, you know, Taking a Pelham 123, Anderson Tapes, you know, Heat, Ocean's Eleven, and so forth. They all they all follow this formula. And the thing is, Widows follows it to a degree, but it's set in, such, in the world of, of, uh, real-world desperation and this kind of feminist uh, disenchantment that um, there's a little bit, it's a little uh, lacking in a a fun quotient, as it were. And so I think Mm -hmm. that might be kind of a turnoff for some people wanting a good heist movie. Uh, And it is a good heist movie, but it's it's a little darker than most. I mean, one there's a real there's a fun scene, like two thirds of the way uh, through where they're training, and Viola Davis is like putting having them uh, put on these backpacks with different weight, because uh, she's coming mm-hmm. up with different scenarios of how much, you know, this money could weigh if it was in this kind of bills or these kind of bills, and so that kind of that's a fun scene and like oh, okay that and then we're getting a, a peek into their training. And you kind of you realize when you see a scene like that, you're like you want a little more of that, but you only That's get true. that. You only get that. Yeah. Um, but Viola Davis is amazing, and I, I, I don't know how big the film is going to be. I do think it might have legs because there is a. Um, it really is tapping into some kind of uh, a very potent. Me Too times up, times up, uh, uh, under uh, feeling going on in the air, and it, mm-hmm. it really gets into that. Well, it's as I as I told someone I was walking out. It's a more, it's a very, it's kind of like a high toned, uh, artier set it off. That's uh, true. Is what is what it is. Yeah. But Viola yeah. Davis is amazing, and um, the three women are are great. Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, and I forget the name of the third 
woman, uh, Alice, Allison, the one who uh, has the arrangement with Lucas Haas. And yeah, I think that's Elizabeth Debicki. Yeah, Elizabeth Dick. She re, she's the one who really pops in the, of yeah. the three. I mean, Avila Davis is terrific, uh, but she's the one that really kind of leaves a, a, an impression. And Colin Farrell's really, really good as this kind of beleaguered, uh, would-be politician who mm-hmm. is corrupt but doesn't want to be corrupt, but is kind of pres- uh, kind of a, a victim of his own circumstance. Uh, so he's he's all, he's really 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 good, and uh, it's a good film. It's not an Oscar contender the way some people might be positioning it. Uh, in a lesser year, Viola Davis probably would get a nomination. I don't see it happening this year for her, and. Uh, Maybe Gillian Flynn will get her overdue Oscar nomination because she wasn't nominated for Gone Girl. And since this is an, one of the better adaptations of this year, she might get a nomination. But this is not uh, an Oscar movie. It's just it's Steve. It's the most Steve McQueen will ever have any fun. He's not a fun director, but this is his version mm-hmm. of a fun movie. That's a good point, yeah. I, I did want to mention. Then again, you know, Net, Netflix could hire him to make a comedy. We'd we'd never know. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it'll, the, the I'm sure it'll just bringing a, it back around, Aaron. I'm making it a full circle maybe, conversation. Maybe he'll do one of those one of those six Sandler movies that are still left undone. <laughs> well, I did want to mention two passings before we wrap up. I, I wanted to say uh, Francis Lay passed this uh, passed away this past week, and he of course won the Oscar for Love Story. Uh, in 1971, won for the, the 1970 Oscars, uh, and um, you know, what did he win I, for? Uh, Love Story. He, he won I know. for what was the Oscar? Uh, uh, best Original Score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I thought that was uh, 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 Jarre or Marie Jarre. I, I thought, uh, but who did that score? But it's Francis Lay. It was a Francis Lay. Yeah, score? he did yeah. Love Story. Yeah. Okay, I don't know. Yes, Francis okay. Lay. Yeah, he's, sing, he's sing, first sing in... "Where Do I Begin" for us. <laughs> Where do I begin <laughs> to tell the story? <laughs> I'll spare you, but uh, yeah, uh, he also did "Man and a Woman," of course, which is uh, you know that's we, we've been hearing that for the last fifty years. But and and Emmanuel too. Emmanuel oh too, right? Love it. Yeah, he's one of these that. composers. I thought he had such a gift for melody that I would find his albums, you know, uh, at, at the at the rec- used record stores, and I would just buy a Francis Lay album because I knew it was going to be good, and it always was. It never disappointed, even if I'd never seen the movie. And so he yeah. he was one of those guys that I just I thought he was just one of the great composers that I I, I was just a tremendous fan, and uh, you know he worked with Claude Lelouch for. Uh, or Lelouch, however you pronounce it, uh, for 53 years because he uh, posted a statement on Twitter. He said that we had a we had, we we had a partnership that lasted 53 years, and he scored all of his films. Mm. And wow. uh, so it was pretty pretty amazing. And the other one is I wonder uh, if you I wonder if he was like uh, Pacino. I wonder if he thought that Arthur Hiller was an ass. <laughs> yeah, I would like to know. <coughs> Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is it, you can find the clip on YouTube when he accepts his Oscar for Love Story, and uh, this this is this really was just uh, a kind of a wow moment for me. Do you the the ones who are presenting the Oscar to him are Glenn Campbell and Joan Blondell. <laughs> mm. What an honor! 
The weird part is Glenn Campbell didn't know where he was. <laughs> Probably not. At that time? Yeah. Yeah. That's something. Well, the other one was Douglas Rain, who did the voice of Hal, of course, in 2001. Really? The age of 90, yeah. I didn't know he other, passed away. Yeah, he did. He did. That was the other passing I was going to mention. <coughs> so, Did you ever try to get him? I tried forever to get Douglas Rain for the Kubrick series and yeah. uh, could never never get through to him. Uh, and, you know, if he wasn't willing to do the Kubrick series, I just wanted him to do the, the recording on my answering machine. I mean, that's, oh, I know, right. really. <laughs> that's awesome. Did he like the I, I want to know what he sounds like. I want to know what he sound sounds like. Have, are there interviews with him? I don't know. I I, sh- I haven't looked, but yeah, I, he. Um, I think he passed maybe yesterday or the day before. But yeah, it's for, fairly in the last couple of days. But yeah, he like was, could you uh, tell that was the voice of Hal? Like I really wanted to hear his yeah speaking voice um, outside of two thousand one, which is all I know of him. I mean, I know he. He performed in in other movies, and I think he was a stage actor, primarily. <clears throat> and he's also what they brought him back for 2010. Yeah, they did. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, I think he was also they brought him as a gag voice for Airplane Two. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. His... Airplane. Airplane yeah, because Robert Hayes has to deactivate the uh, the computer, <laughs> the computer, and airplane too. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So, wow. Rest in peace, Francis Lay and Douglas Rain. Douglas Rain worked with Stanley Kubrick and the director of Airplane Two. I mean, that's a career. <laughs> what is his that's name? Ken Ryan. Finkelman. Ken Finkelman. That was the guy. Who Finkelman. Did <laughs> I want to talk to Finkelman, man, because he oh. did. He 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 wrote and directed Airplane Two, right? And then yeah. he yeah. wrote the same year. He wrote Grease Two. Yeah, that's a hell of a wow. year. Yeah, I want. I, I reached out to him. I got his uh, email from Mike White, who uh, had talked to him at some point, I think, and he didn't respond to me. But last year, I was going to do a 35th anniversary on both of them, and just I, I wanted to know what. What is it like to have the unenviable task of following up two of the big of Paramount's biggest hits in the same calendar year? <laughs> That's probably you, why he doesn't want to talk about it. Right? Yeah, probably so. But I wow. tried. I really did. I wonder if he ever got a script that didn't have two on the end of it. <laughs> Just well, he did direct else. a comedy in the mid '80s, Head Office. I remember. It seems like it had Judge yeah. Reinhold in it, I believe. But that's oh, the only other thing wow. I know of. Yeah. Where was he? Where was he when they were putting together "Where the Boys Are" too? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>